Well, we were going to start an Old Testament series based on the recent weather patterns alone. We would have started with Noah and his ark. So we spend a significant amount of time studying the New Testament, which is, which is good. I mean, it includes the life and words of Jesus Christ, the beginnings of the church, the growth of the church, the writings of Paul and other giants of faith. And, and it's an important part of our, our scriptures. A lot of the New Testament is extremely practical as far as how followers of Jesus are supposed to live, but the New Testament is not all that there is. Last summer, we took a deep dive into the Old Testament. If you were, if you were around for that, we, we studied through the life of the prophet Elisha, and we also studied through the book of Daniel, and I thoroughly enjoyed that. And so what we decided we were going to do, at least for now, is that at least once during the summer, it could happen at other times during the year as well, but at least for one series during the summer, we want to take a deep dive into an Old Testament character or an Old Testament book. And so we know that summer often involves traveling, uh, vacation, Sundays missed from church. And so I want to challenge you on this in two different ways today. Uh, Number one is this. If you go away on a weekend, if you go away for vacation and you're gone on a Sunday, I would challenge you to find a place to worship where you are. Um, I know it sounds daunting, and there's even a temptation for me when I'm on vacation with my family to say, you know what, I, you know, four kids trying to check them into the church. I know that that's a lot, of, a lot of pressure, but finding a place to worship with brothers and sisters in Christ who, who you may never get to worship with again is a really cool thing. Experiencing a church that's not like a church you normally go to is a really good thing, and so Google is your friend in that. Look up churches. Find churches in the area. Um, Unless you're in the middle of nowhere, you're going to be able to find something. And even then, you might find something even cooler in the middle of nowhere, some of those little, little churches that still, still meet together. So I would challenge you to find a place to worship. And then the second thing I would challenge you to do uh, is to listen back uh, if you miss a message in this series. Uh, each week, the audio of our messages goes up on our website and is also available um, in the podcast store on iTunes for listen or download for free. Um, it's almost always up by Tuesday morning. And additionally, we've been live streaming late service uh, this service for a uh, test as a test for future possibilities, so you can go back and actually watch the service if you want to via the church Facebook page most weeks. I would encourage you most of the time. I would always say go back and listen to messages when you miss them, but sometimes within a message series, each message could stand alone. This particular case, as we walk through the book of Ezra together, which we'll begin to do today, each message will sort of build on a previous one, and if you miss one, you won't be completely lost, but you also won't see the whole picture, so I would encourage you to go back and listen or watch. Now, where and when are we when we begin reading in the book of Ezra? Well, that's a good question because the truth is it's probably a book that you have overlooked if you have read through the Old Testament. And you, you kind of get through your you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You get through those, um, and then you kind of cut through some of the history of the, the Kings and Chronicles and First and Second Samuel, those books. And then you kind of just want to get to the Psalms because it's an easier read. And you might skip over Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. It's all in there. Now, something most of us may or, or some of us may or may not fully understand is that the Bible as we know it, the Bible as we have it, is not actually in chronological order. And, and so quite a few of you are reading along with us uh, through the Bible in a year. We took on that challenge last summer actually during that Elisha series to read through the Bible in a year. And quite a few of you probably chose a chronological reading plan, which means at times, in order to stay proper, you are jumping from book to book. You're skipping over and circling back uh, sometime later to some different books of the Old Testament, even some different parts within a book. Now, a good portion of the Bible is in chronological order, but where it isn't, it often has to do with the fact that some of the ordering of the books was done more for stylistic reasoning 
then chronology. Books of wisdom are together. Books of poetry are together. Books of the prophets are together. And so if you would pick up your Bible and read straight through the Old Testament, you would find yourself jumping around in time a little bit. And so the setting of Ezra, despite where it falls in the Old Testament canon, is actually described in both the book of the prophet Jeremiah and the book of the prophet Isaiah. We'll read Jeremiah's first. Jeremiah chapter 25, beginning of verse 7. But you would not listen to me, says the Lord. You made me furious by worshiping idols you made with your own hands, bringing on yourselves all the disasters you now suffer. And now the Lord of heaven's army says, because you have not listened to me, I will gather together all the armies of the north under King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, who I have appointed as my deputy. I will bring them all against this land and its people and against the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy you and make an object of horror and contempt and ruin forever. I will take away your happy singing and laughter. The joyful voices of bridegrooms and brides will no longer be heard. Your millstones will fall silent and the lights in your homes will go out. This entire land will become a desolate wasteland. Israel and her neighboring lands will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Now, before we finish that, I just want to make sure we understand what we're looking at here. We're talking about something very bad happening to God's people. Now, they earned it. I mean, it's made clear they were worshiping idols made with their own hands. They were doing things they knew they were not supposed to do. And so God says, I'm going to give you into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of Babylon. You're going to be there for 70 years. Your towns are going to be destroyed. The thing that hits me the hardest is verse 10, I will take away your happy singing and laughter. Like there will be no joy among you. Then we read in verse 12, then after 70 years of captivity are over, I will punish the king of Babylon and his people for their sins, says the Lord. I will make the country of the Babylonians a wasteland forever. Now keep that in mind that there was an end to the 70 years, because that's really where we are when we begin the book of Ezra. Now when I try to describe the relationship between God's people, Israel, and God himself, I often come back to two analogies. First is a roller coaster. Um, any roller coaster riders in the house? If you're like, anybody like you couldn't pay me to get on a roller coaster. Anybody in that category? That's that's nice. That's good. Bunch of adventurous people. Glad to hear it. We actually went to King's Dominion just this week with an awesome group of teenagers and some great volunteers, and we rode roller coasters. And the truth about roller coasters is this: if you've ridden a particular roller coaster before, especially if you've done it several times, you know what's going to happen. You know what to expect. You know about how long the ride will be. You don't expect any unknown. In fact, if you're riding a roller coaster you've ridden before and there's unknown, something has gone wrong, okay? So you know what's coming if you've ridden a roller coaster before, but when you ride a specific roller coaster for the first time, you don't know what to expect. Each year when we've made that trip to King's Dominion with the students, I've, I've ridden a little bit more. Um, the first year, I didn't ride hardly anything, and then I've slowly kind of added some roller coasters in and riding some much more intense rides than I ever thought I would again, and um, but I'll never forget the first time I rode the Flight of Fear, the indoor roller coaster at King's Dominion, because the entirety of the ride occurs in near total darkness. And so as soon as you shoot off into the ride, you, even if you could keep your eyes open, which it's a pretty intense ride, it's hard to do that, you don't know where you're going. And so I kept thinking it was over, and then it wasn't. And I kept thinking we were going to stay right side up, and then we didn't. And I kept thinking I was fine, and then I thought I was getting sick. And that's kind of how the relationship between God and his people seems to be as we study it through the Old Testament. You think it's going fine, and then it's not. You think it's where it's supposed to be, and then it changes. You think it's complete, 
And then it's just beginning. It'll throw you for a loop if you study that relationship chronologically. The other analogy I use is an on-again, off-again relationship. That dating relationship that had moments and periods of seriousness but also got broken off several times, that person you keep coming back to, and that relationship that, that gets to a certain point but never gets quite serious enough. In a relationship like that, you get to the point where you're just not sure what the other person wants out of the relationship because it seems one or both of you can't make up your mind. And in this particular case, Israel's the one that can't make up their mind. And that really is how the relationship between God and his people Israel is at this point in history, at least from Israel's side. God never changes his position. God never stops wanting them to be his people. He, he never stops telling them what they need to do. But Israel is hot and cold. They change their mind. They wander. They get distracted. They worship other gods. They get into trouble and turn back to God. God takes them back, and then they get distracted again, and it becomes this cycle, a cycle that I would put up against the most soap opera-worthy on-again, off-again relationships there have ever been. It's just so back and forth. And we're in the midst of that cycle when we begin the book of Ezra. God's people have been put in exile, as we read in, in Jer Jeremiah. They've been taken captive. Their homes have been destroyed, and it's been 70 years. But there was a promise that the exile wouldn't last forever, that Babylon would be punished for their role. And then, as I said, we also read a little bit about how this saving of them, this coming back from the 70 years, how this happens. We read a little bit about it, actually, in the book of the prophet Isaiah, in verse 45, beginning, chapter 45, beginning in verse 1. This is what the Lord says to Cyrus, his anointed one. Now note, Cyrus is the king of Persia. That's going to come in here in just a second. This is what the Lord says to Cyrus, his anointed one, whose right hand he will empower. Before him, mighty kings will be paralyzed with fear. Their fortress gates will be opened, never to shut again. This is what the Lord says. I will go before you, Cyrus, and level the mountains. I will smash down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. And I will give you treasures hidden in the darkness, secret riches. I will do this so you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, the one who calls you by name. And why have I called you for this work? Why did I call you by name when you did not know me? It is for the sake of Jacob, my servant, Israel, my chosen one. I am the Lord. There is no other God. I have equipped you for battle, though you don't even know me. So all the world from east to west will know there is no other God. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Now, that may not seem like it has anything to do with what we're talking about here. But as we begin the book of Ezra, we'll quickly see that Cyrus is central to the Israelites being allowed to return home. God uses Cyrus, even though Cyrus does not know nor follow God. In fact, God's people were exiled in Babylon. It's Babylon that took them over. But then the Babylonians were captured by the Persians, who Cyrus is the king of. And in his first year of reign as king of Persia, King Cyrus, as we'll actually read in Ezra, is prompted by God, just as Isaiah had said, to do something completely unexpected, to send God's people home. And the idea of returning home is appealing to us. We like it. It shows up in our lives. Every, every school year in the fall, schools celebrate a, a ritual of homecoming, which usually means a football game, a dance for current students, and a major walk down memory lane for those who once went to the school. Some of you may not feel this way, but a lot of people uh, long for simpler times, to go home where things were easier, for, for childhood even, where there weren't any responsibilities. Uh, returning to where you came from gives a sense of community and shared history that really can't be replicated. 
Many of us long for those glory days for the simpler times to go home. And if that's comforting to you, imagine the Israelite people, for God's people, after being exiled for 70 years, imagine the possibility of returning home and what that must have felt like. So what I want to do is finally jump into the book of Ezra and see what we can learn about God through this story. In Ezra chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and to send it throughout his kingdom. Now, before we actually read the proclamation, I want to point out that there's already something we can see that God has done here. God remembered his promises. There are countless prophecies, things that God said through his prophets recorded in the Old Testament, and God doesn't go back on them. God made promises and he kept them. And here that prophecy we read from Jeremiah, we read from Jeremiah, is fulfilled in the person and action of Cyrus. Cyrus doesn't know God, and yet he's prompted by God to proclaim in writing this very proclamation, beginning in verse 2. This is what the King Cyrus, this is what King Cyrus of Persia says. <clears throat> the Lord the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem and Judah to rebuild this temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives in Jerusalem. And may your God be with you. Wherever this Jewish remnant is found, let their neighbors contribute toward their expenses by giving them silver and gold, supplies for the journey, and livestock, as well as a voluntary offering for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Now in that, we find something else that God's already done here. God provided what they needed. See, not only does King Cyrus not know God, and yet still makes this proclamation. But additionally, he sees to it that the people have what they need both to travel and to rebuild the temple. Now, this is a big deal because if you've been in exile for 70 years, living under someone else's rule for 70 years, you don't have a lot to call your own. Even after 70 years, it's not your home. You know it's not your home. And, and I imagine there were people that were holding out hope, that had heard the words of Jeremiah, that were holding out hope for 70 years, but a lot of people hadn't. And, and they figured, this is life, this is all that it is. We're stuck here. The ability to go back home, if it was ever even possible, required so much. And God provides by prompting Cyrus to make this a part of his proclamation. Let their neighbors contribute, contribute to their expenses. Supplies for the journey, livestock, and even an offering for the temple. They could not have gone back, and they could not have rebuilt the temple without that support. Verse 5, then God stirred the hearts of the priests and the Levites and the leaders of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin to go to Jerusalem, to be the ones to go, to rebuild the temple of the Lord. And all their neighbors assisted by giving them articles of silver and gold, supplies for the journey and livestock. They gave them many valuable gifts in addition to all the voluntary offerings. Verse 7, King Cyrus himself brought out the articles that King Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the Lord's temple in Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his own gods. Now this is interesting because in that we find one more thing that God did. God restored what was lost. I mentioned previously that when God's people were taken into exile, their lands were destroyed. Their temple was destroyed. Well, part of that destruction when you're conquering a people is to loot. Unless the gods that you serve forbid it, which, which happens in some cases, if there is stuff that can be salvaged, especially of value, you take it. 
And so they looted uh, the sacred articles that belonged in God's temple. Actually, that was specifically customary because when you conquered a people, one of the things that you were supposed to do was to carry off the images of their gods as you were conquering them. Now, in this particular case, the Israelites didn't have any images. They didn't have any idols for God. So they carried off the most sacred thing that they could find, the temple articles. King Nebuchadnezzar had them removed from God's temple as it was destroyed and placed in the temples to the gods he worshipped. Now, that is like salt in a wound. That's like punching somebody in the face and then spitting on them. You've done enough damage, and you're, now you're just doing something to make us mad. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar did with those articles. And yet here, here, King Cyrus goes as far as to return these articles to God's people himself so they could be restored to their proper place, the rebuilt temple of God. See, the story of God's people returning to Israel is a beautiful story of redemption. I mean, this was 70 years. All was lost of their home. And yet here God begins to restore them to where they belong. It's a beautiful story of redemption. It's a beautiful story of God keeping his promises. It's a beautiful story of restoration. And I'm looking forward to studying with you over the next four weeks as we go deeper into to what this actually looked like. But here's what I want to make sure we understand right up front. Because if we don't see this right up front, we're not going to get what we need to get out of the book of Ezra. And that's this. What God did for his people then, he still does in our lives today. This seems like such a long time ago, and it seems like such an old story yeah, what God did for them, he still does for us. God remembered his promises to them, and he still remembers his promises today. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. For Jesus Christ, the Son of God, does not waver between yes and no. He is the one whom Silas, Timothy, and I preach to you, and as God's ultimate yes, he always does what he says. For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes, and through Christ are amen, which means yes ascends to God for his glory. It is God who enables us along with you to stand firm for Christ. He has commissioned us and he has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything he has promised us. Through Jesus Christ, God kept his promise and made a way for us to be saved. We all have these moments, these seasons where doubt creeps in. There are times when we're just not sure what God's up to, if he's up to anything. There are days when we're not even sure where God is. It's in those moments, in those days, in those seasons that we need to remember that God remembers his promises and that even if it's not clear to us, he is working. And even if we can't see it, he is active. And even if it feels like he's far away, he is close. Now we'll struggle with this, believing that God keeps his promises because the truth is, We've all been let down by people who have promised us things before. And it's one thing if it's just a, an acquaintance. But a lot of us have been let down by, by family, or by friends, by loved ones, who, who've made a promise and then not kept it. And so we struggle because we've experienced broken promises. We've broken promises ourselves. God won't. He doesn't. He never has. And he never will break a promise. He keeps his promises. God also provided what they needed, and he continues to provide what we need. Matthew 6, verse 25 through 33 speaks heavily to this. 
This is Jesus speaking. He says, that's why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food or drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And see, a lot of us maybe have heard that before. And if you're a person who doesn't worry, if you don't have a problem with worrying, please consider yourself blessed. Because those of us that can't help but worry, read a passage of scripture like that, and we say, that sounds good, and I know I'm supposed to rely on God, but it doesn't change the fact that I'm worried about something. And it doesn't change the fact that that worry weighs me down. And so we keep reading in verse 28, and why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? And, and, and again, if you're not a person that worries, consider yourself blessed because those of us that do, we say, that sounds good. And I know I should rely on God. But, but are you telling me I'm not supposed to worry when the rent's due and the money's not there? Are you, are you telling me I'm not supposed to worry when my, there's an issue with my, my child? Tell me I'm not supposed to worry when my, my parents are sick and I, I'm not there to take care of them? Are you telling me I'm not supposed to worry about these things? Because I, it sounds great and I'd love to give it all to God, but I'm a worrier. He goes on, so don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. You see, I wish I had an answer for worry. I really don't, other than saying we need to trust God. We need to remember that the things that we tend to get so hung up worrying about are of this world, and this world is temporary. I also think we need to remember sometimes that there's a disconnect between what we think we need and what we actually need. That applies to the things we worry about as well. You know, most of us have much more than we need and still desire more. Most of us find things to worry about on top of our legitimate worries. But it's important that we understand when it comes to what we truly need, God provides. God gives us the provision we need. But even beyond physical needs, God gave us something even more important. It should give us even more comfort. In John chapter 14, beginning in verse 16, this is Jesus speaking again. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and, it doesn't, he, and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. And skipping ahead to verse 23. Jesus replied, all who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them, and we will come and make our home with each of them. Anyone who doesn't love me will not obey me. And remember, my words are not my own. What I'm telling you is the Father who sent me. I'm telling you these things now while I'm still with you. But when the Father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. See, even as Jesus left this earth, God sent his Holy Spirit to be our guide, to be our helper. What more could we need? We rely so much on other people and, and money and stuff, but God has given us all we need, both by providing us with physical needs and by sending his Holy Spirit to guide us, if we'll listen, if we'll allow it to guide us. And then for the people in the time of Ezra, God restored what was lost, and he still does that today. He still restores what was lost because we're all, in fact, lost 
without him, but God is willing to restore us. It doesn't even matter how lost we are. It doesn't matter what made us get lost. It doesn't matter whether we got lost intentionally, stayed lost intentionally, or didn't even know that we were lost. God is willing to restore us, to take us back. And we know that because he made a way for us to be restored. He made it clear that this life and its struggles are temporary, but that through Jesus Christ there is restoration and there is so much more beyond this life and eternity with him. 1 Peter chapter 5 says this, in the beginning of verse 10, In his kindness God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you've suffered a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you, and he will place you on a firm foundation, all power to him forever. Amen. See, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's funny, people ask me on a fairly regular basis, hey, I want to start reading the Bible, where should I start? And honestly, there are a lot of places I don't send them. Um, I don't send them to Revelation, okay? Uh, If you've read the book of Revelation, that's not where you start. You will get confused and have too many questions that I don't know how to answer. That's just the truth of it. I don't send people to to a book like Numbers, where you can get bogged down in in some of the historical details of of Israel. I don't send people uh, to Psalms. It's beautiful, but it's not really necessarily the best place to start studying about God. I don't even send people to Genesis 1-1. A lot of people will do that. I don't have a problem with that, but that's not what I do. Because in my opinion, if I'm going to send somebody into Scripture for the first time, it might also be sending them into Scripture for the last time if it doesn't go well. And so I'm going to say, I want you to read about Jesus. I want you to hear the gospel. I want you to to pick Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. I want you to read about the birth, the life, the death of Jesus Christ and what that means. And then if you want to read the rest of Scripture in light of Jesus, I think you'll get a lot more out of it that way. But what's so interesting to me is that we, we have heard the good news of Jesus Christ found here today in the Old Testament. God's plan to redeem us has been in motion since sin entered the world. And what he did with Israel, these amazing stories from so long ago, is what he still does with us. This is such good news. In a world where promises are rarely kept, God keeps his promises. In a world where it feels like we never have enough, God provides what we need. In a world where damage and destruction reign, God provides restoration. He's willing to reclaim us as his own, whether we deserve it or not, and we don't. God, his promises, his provisions, his restoration, those are things that Israel desperately needed and God came through. Today, our world needs those same things, and the God that we serve will continue to come through. It's our responsibility then to make him known, to let the world know that promises can be kept, that provision is available, and that restoration is possible, and it's our God who restores. Let's pray. God, thank you for being that God who restores. Thank you for making a way for us to be made right with you in spite of our sin. Thank you for sending Jesus to accomplish that goal on the cross in that grave. God, thank you for desiring that relationship with us. And God, thank you for the hope we have of eternity with you. And I pray that you would never cease challenging us with your word, whether it's Old Testament, New Testament, whatever it is, that you would never cease challenging us with these words from so long ago. Help us to focus as we continue in our service. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.